0: Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. If you don't know me, my name is Andrew, one of the pastors here at GFC. And uh, we are in the Book of Judges. We've been in it for the last few weeks. And uh, I don't know about you, but if you've been with us over the last few weeks, uh, for me, it's been really fun and really challenging going through this book. Because the Book of Judges has some of what I think are some of the most challenging, as well as some of the most bizarre stories that you'll find in the whole in the whole Bible. Um, some of the things we read, and we don't often go to these stories. Um, we don't often go to these stories in, in, on Sundays or whatnot. And so sometimes we can read these things, and they can feel very jarring. And we can question, why in the world is this in the Bible? Why would God allow this to happen? And so we've been wrestling through some of those things. And today is going to be no exception. We're going to be going through another story, one that I think may be a little more familiar to a lot of us, because today we're going to learn from the strongest man that ever lived. Today we're going to learn from the strongest man who ever lived, but we're going to learn from this strong man. We're going to learn about weakness. Sounds like fun? No, it's not going to be fun, but it's going to be good, I think. And so, If you grew up in the church, maybe you've heard the story of Samson before, but if you haven't, that's okay. We're going to go through the story, and then after we go through it, we're going to draw some things out of, it, out of it, but I think it's, it's, it's going to be a beneficial time. So you guys ready? Are you guys ready? Okay, all right. We've got to wake up a little bit, because the story of Samson is uh, crazy. So here we go. You can turn to Judges chapter 13. We're going to look at the first verse... We're going to kind of lay the, the out the context for the story. So Judges chapter 13, verse 1, it says this. It says again that Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord handed them over to the Philistines who oppressed them for 40 years. Now, if you've been with us over the course of the last few weeks, uh, this should kind of, uh, some flags should go up in your brain. Like, hmm, I've seen this before. Because in the book of Judges, we have this cycle that re- repeats over and over again. I have a little drawing of what this cycle kind of looks like. See, it starts where Israel sins. They turn to false gods. They, they do something. They sin. And then God allows them to be oppressed by some foreign power or whatnot. And then at, in their oppression, they finally turn back to God and they repent. And then God sends a judge, a deliverer. The judge comes. They get delivered. The people have peace for a long time. And then the cycle just starts over and over again. So with Judges chapter 13, verse 1, we've already had the first two parts of this cycle happen. It says that the Israelites did evil of the Lord again, so they've sinned, and now they're being oppressed by the Philistines. So that's 13, verse 1. So we're looking for, okay, the cycle is repeating. Let's see what happens. So we go into verses 2 and 3, and this is what it says. It says, In those days a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah. His wife was unable to become pregnant. And they had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, Even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son. And We continue into verses 4 and 5. It says, So be careful. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink, nor eat any forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And his hair must never be cut, for he will be dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. He will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. All right, so we have this Manoah's wife. She gets this angelic uh, being. Uh, the angel of the Lord comes and says, hey, you're going to have a child. And then he starts giving her these lists of like things to do and not do while she's pregnant. And uh, my wife, Amanda, is pregnant right now, so we're hearing that all the time from different people. Like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And so, like, what in the world is going on, though? Because I've never had, like, someone say, hey, make sure you don't cut your baby's hair. Like, what is going on here? Why is the angel of the Lord doing this? Because this sounds really odd, especially, I think, to us modern people. Well, he says that this baby in, the, in verse 5 is going to be a Nazarite from birth. And what the angel of the Lord is saying is that this child is going to be partaking in what's called the Nazarite vow. And if you've read earlier in the story in, that's been going on throughout the whole Bible, you'll read in Numbers chapter 6 when God is one of the laws that God gives to his people when they're at Mount Sinai, he says, Hey, there's this thing called the Nazarite vow, where if any person in Israel, a man or a woman, literally anybody could do this, and what it was was someone could say, Hey, God, I want to do something special for you. I want to dedicate my life to you for this set amount of time, and I'm going to take a Nazarite vow. And so it was it was kind of like our equivalent to, hey, I'm going to go um, be a monk for a year, or hey, I'm going to go be in silence and solitude for a year. It was like someone ramping up their spiritual dedication in like a whole new way. And anyone in Israel could do it, a man or a woman, anybody. But there were three things, three common things that you weren't supposed to do during that Nazarite vow. And these were the three things. One, you weren't supposed to touch any dead bodies, all right? You're supposed to be ritually pure, which doesn't mean like, oh, if you touch a dead body, you've sinned. But there's this idea in Israel where if you're going to the temple where where God's presence was, you weren't supposed to be ritually impure. And so like the priests weren't ever supposed to touch dead bodies and things like that. Um, Even if they did, they just had to do these different rituals to become pure again. But so if you did a Nazarite vow, you weren't supposed to touch any dead bodies. You weren't supposed to drink any wine or alcoholic beverage, and you weren't supposed to cut your hair. And these were all just signs of, hey, I'm in this Nazarite vow right now. I need to not do any of these things. Now, the interesting thing is the Nazarite vow was a voluntary thing that anyone could do, and they would say, I'm going to start now, and I'm going to finish it here. But here we have Manoah's wife is told, your child is going to be a Nazarite from birth. Like, he doesn't have any choice. He's going to be a Nazarite from birth, all right? And that's important. We need to keep this Nazarite vow thing in our head as we walk through the story of Samson, because it's going to come up again. But we move then to the end of Judges chapter 13, and this is what it says. It says, when her son was born, she named him Samson, and the Lord blessed him as he grew up. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he lived in Mahanadan, which is located between the towns of Zorah and Eshtol. All right, so we've just been kind of setting the stage for the story of Samson, and up until this point, we've had some pretty awesome things mentioned about Samson. And I have Samson's resume. I want to put up on the screen. So Samson has a pretty impressive resume as a character in the Bible, as a judge, because that's what he's going to become. It says uh, we learned that he had a miraculous birth. Remember, his mom couldn't have kids, and then the angel of the Lord comes and says, "Hey, you're going to have a child." And whenever that happens, a number of times in the Bible, and whenever that happens. Something big's about to happen, right? I mean, think about like Jesus himself was born miraculously. Or you think about like Abraham and Sarah. Like whenever an angel shows up and says, hey, you can't have kids, but you're going to have one. You got to pay attention, all right? We learn that he becomes a Nazarite. Um, he's chosen to begin the liberation of Israel from the Philistines. He's, it says he's blessed by the Lord. And it says the spirit of the Lord stirs within him. Up until this point in the book of Judges, we haven't had anyone with a resume like this. Think about the judges we've had the last few weeks. We had a guy named Ehud a couple weeks ago. And if you remember, like he had a crippled hand. Uh, we had a couple weeks ago, we had the judge Deborah. And back then, just in the cultural context, like women weren't valued on the same level that men were, which wasn't right, but that's how it was. And so she had obstacles she had to overcome, and God used her in amazing ways. This is an awesome story. And then last week, we had the story of Gideon, and he had fears and things that he had to overcome. But here we have a guy with this resume. So if this is our first time going through the story, and I know a lot of us know the story, but if this is our first time going through, we should be like, man, God is setting something amazing up. This guy is going to be incredible. This is going to be the best judge yet. One thing, though, we need to point out before we dive into the story. Do you remember the cycle Israel sinned, they're being oppressed. What was the third thing on the cycle? They, they repent. Has Israel cried out to God in repentance? No, but what's God doing? He's setting up their deliverance. That's another thing. As we walk through the story of Samson, just I encourage you to read it sometime. Try, try to find a place where the Israel's actually repenting of their sins, where they actually want to be delivered. See, as we've been going through the book of Judges, we've been seeing Israel spiral downward and downward and downward, where they're becoming more like the Canaanite people. And they've reached a point where they don't even want to cry out to God anymore. Like, they're cool with just the way things are. Like, yeah, the Philistines are ruling over us, but so what? Life is good, we're fine. But in the midst of that, God knows they need saving from themselves, even though they don't realize it All right, so that's kind of the the lay of the land for the story of Samson. Now let's kind of dive in, um, because we see Samson's, the trajectory of his life is, we have the birth of Samson, if we can go to the next slide, he's supposed to begin rescuing Israel. That's the trajectory his life is set upon from the very beginning. But now let's see what happens. We turn the page to Judges chapter 14, Samson has just been born, and he kind of, the story skips ahead to when he's a young man, and this is what it says in verses 1 and 2. It says, one day when Samson was in Timnah, one of the Philistine women caught his eye. When he returned home, he told his father and mother, a young Philistine woman in Timnah caught my eye. I want to marry her. Get her for me. We continue on, and it says this. It says, his father and mother objected. Isn't there even one woman in our tribe or among all the Israelites you can marry? They asked. Why must you go to the pagan Philistines to find a wife? But Samson told his father, get her for me. She looks good to me. All right, the story's really just started, but do you already see a problem? Samson's meant to begin rescuing Israel from the Philistines, and now he wants to marry one of them, and he has like no problems with it. Again, Israel's at a point where they don't even see the problem in their society. They don't even realize that they're becoming like the people around them. And Samson is included in that. And so there's already a problem right from the beginning. It's like, what's going to happen? Despite Samson's unfaithfulness, God wants to be faithful to his people. And we read that in the next verse, verse 4. This, verse 4 is one of the key passages to this story. It's kind of the narrator's kind of stepping out and giving us a really awesome detail. And he says, his father and mother didn't realize the Lord was at work in this creating an opportunity to work against the Philistines who ruled over Israel at that time. God is at work despite Samson's poor choice. Like, he hasn't wrecked his life yet, but he's started down kind of a bad trajectory, right? He's meant to save Israel, and he's like, nah, I'm going to marry one of them. Not a good first move, and yet God is still at work. Now, Throughout this story, we're going to be looking, when is Samson going to begin rescuing Israel? But there's a number of episodes in his life we're going to look at. And the first episode is called this. It's called The Philistine Woman. And this is in Judges 14. Um, It's in verses continuing on. Or sorry, we've already looked at that. I'm way ahead. We just saw that. I'm loving this story so much. I'm already jumping ahead, all right? That's the first episode we just saw. He wants to marry this Philistine woman. Now we're going to the next episode, which is one of my favorites, and it's called the lion, the lion. And this is verses five through nine. And in this story, Samson, he's on his way to Timnah. He's on his way to, to talk to this Philistine woman he wants to marry, and a lion comes upon him. And the lion jumps out on him, and this is what it says in verse 6. It says that the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands. Have you ever seen a, like, someone rip a phone book in half or do something amazing like that? Imagine someone tearing a lion in half. Like, has anyone ever watched like, World's Strongest Man competition? Like, imagine if tearing a lion in half was one of the like, things they had to do. Like, that would be crazy. This would be so crazy to see. But this is the first time we learn about Samson's strength. And we don't know if, like, maybe Samson didn't know that he had this strength until the lion attacks him. And then he's like, he does it, and he's like, whoa, this is awesome. Or maybe he had that strength before, we don't know. But this, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And because the Spirit of the Lord was on him, he's able to defeat this lion. Now, Samson, he continues on his way, he goes to Timnah, he talks to his lady friend, and then on the way back to his home, he stops by the road where he killed this lion and he sees the carcass, but he sees bees inside the carcass, which is kind of weird. And he bends down and he sees honey. These bees have made this hive, and he reaches in and he grabs some honey out of this dead carcass and he eats it. You gotta love the Hebrew Bible. Like, what in the world is this story doing? This, this is weird. But remember, remember the Nazarite vow? What was one of the first things that he's not supposed to do? He's not supposed to touch any dead bodies. And here we put our list back up. He's already failed. He's already failed his Nazarite vow. Now, the question is, is the spirit of the Lord still going to be upon him? Is he still going to be able to rescue Israel? Well, let's continue to the next episode. The next episode is called The Party and the Riddle. And in this episode, uh, Samson, he, there's a feast that he throws. He throws this party feast. And in the English, when you're reading it, you're not quite sure, like, is this, what kind of party is this? But it's clear in the Hebrew that this is just, it's a drinking party. He's with these Philistine guys. He's getting ready to get married. He throws this party. And so they're, they're drinking alcohol. They're, they're getting plastered. And remember the Nazarite vow? What was the second thing? He's not supposed to drink any alcohol. Okay, he's already broken it a second time. And we have to ask, what's going to happen? Is the spirit of the Lord still going to be upon him? Is God still going to be able to work through him? Now, at this party, Samson tells this riddle. to to the guys that are with him. And the guys can't figure it out. And so they go to his his bride and they tell her, hey, you need to figure this out or we're going to kill you. So they blackmail her. And this whole thing begins to spiral into what I'm calling the next episode, which is called Revenge Games. And you can go back and you can read Judges chapter 15. Guys, it's a rough chapter to read because it's Samson and the Philistines and they're just kind of one-upping each other back and forth, back and forth, And it's hard to read, but it escalates to this point at the end of chapter 15 in verses 16 and 17. Samson has just slaughtered a thousand Philistines. They had captured him and they had bound him, but the spirit of the Lord came upon him and he breaks free from his bonds. He grabs the jawbone of a dead donkey. He just grabbed whatever he could. He picks it up. And this is what he says afterwards. He says, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've piled them in heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, I've killed a thousand men. And when he finished his boasting, he threw away the jawbone and the place was named Jawbone Hill. I think this is the first mic drop moment in history. He's just, he has this jawbone and he just throws it away. He's like, look at what I've done. I've just killed all these Philistines. Now, why is he able to do that? Is it his strength? no it's the spirit of the lord that's on him but how does samson see it he sees it as his victory not god's victory and samson in the next episode which is at the end of chapter 15 we learn that he's a judge for 20 years so we need to put a, a pause in the story for a sec at this point is samson a good dude or is samson a bad dude good dude bad dude samson is a terrible dude He's breaking his Nazarite vow. He doesn't care about that. He's, he's taking whatever he wants. He sees a Philistine woman, and rather than having like, character and integrity, and like, this is what God wants me to do, he's like, Dad, Mom, get her for me. She's pretty. I want her. Like, and then he's boasting. Remember his resume, how great this guy was supposed to be? And yet how the trajectory of his life, he's just going farther and farther away from that. Yeah, what was it? What was did it say in verse four of chapter fourteen that God was at work in this? So we're still hopeful. We're still hopeful that that conclusion of Samson's going to begin rescuing Israel. We're still hopeful for that. But from our human perspective, this doesn't look too good because Samson doesn't seem like the right guy. Have you ever heard that song? Like I Need a Hero. You ever heard that song? Yeah. That's, I just picture that playing right here. Like, I need a hero. Like, does anyone know that song? Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I just picture that playing because that's what Israel needs, and yet they don't even realize it. And Samson doesn't realize the calling that's on his life, and he's completely throwing it away and going down a bad path. Now, we get to the, the last, one of the last episodes, and probably the most famous episode in the story of Samson. And it's called the prostitute and Delilah. So Samson, he's ruled Israel for 20 years. And throughout this whole time, if you read his story, you'll you'll realize like there's this back and forth between him and the Philistines. And one day after 20 years, Samson, he goes to the capital of the Philistines. He goes, he finds a prostitute, he sleeps with her. And the, the Philistines are like, man, Samson's here. Let's get him. And somehow during the night, Samson finds out and he gets up and he leaves. And on his way out, just, I don't know, just for spite, he grabs the gate of the city. Like picture a huge wooden gate. The spirit of the Lord is on him. He grabs the gate. He rips it off the city and he carries it miles and miles away just, just because. And the Philistines are like, all right, we've had enough. This guy, he's, he's killing us with donkey's jawbones. He's been ruining our lives for 20 years. He's taken our gate for goodness sake. We got to get rid of him. And so in Judges chapter 16 verse 4 and 5 it says this It says sometime later Samson fell in love with a woman named Delilah who lived in the valley of Sorek and the rulers of the Philistines went to her and said entice Samson to tell you what makes him so strong and how he can be overpowered and tied up securely then each of us will give you 1100 pieces of silver Sounds like a pretty good plan from the Philistines Let's go to this guy's, the woman that he loves. Let's bribe her, and let's get her to find out his strength. And Delilah, being the wonderful woman she is, says, Yeah, I'll do that. Of course I will. And so three times Delilah goes to her, honey, and says, Samson, tell me. Tell me why you're so strong. And Samson tells her. He tells, he gives her, he says something. One time he says, Well, if you tie me up with new bowstrings. I'll be as helpless as a little lamb. And so she, she lulls him to sleep. She ties him up and then says, hey, Samson, the Philistines are here. And Philistines jump out and Samson jumps up. He breaks free and he wins the day. A second time she comes in and says, like, honey, you, you lied to me. Tell me what makes you so strong. And he gives her another lie. And then it happens again. And it happens a third time till finally this happens um, in the next verse. It says, this is verse 15. It says, then Delilah pouted. I, f- I find that funny. Like, Deli- just picture this scene. Delilah's just there pouting. Samson is just a complete idiot. She's coming to him three times, like, tell me why you're so strong. And he, he so foolishly and arrogantly keeps playing this game with her. But she comes to him pouting and says, how can you tell me I love you when you don't share your secrets with me? You've made fun of me three times now, and you still haven't told me what makes you so strong. And she tormented him with her nagging day after day until he was sick to death of it. And here's the the soap opera in scripture. Verse 28 then, or excuse me, the, the next verse says this. Finally, Samson shared his secret with her. My hair has never been cut, he confessed, for I was dedicated to God as a Nazarite from birth. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become as weak as anyone else. So Samson, he's reached a point where his assumptions and his cockiness have caught up to him, and he's like, you know what? I'm so strong, it doesn't matter, I'll just tell her. Yeah, I'm a Nazarite, cut my hair, whatever. So, that's what happens. She lulls Samson to sleep again, and she brings someone in, and they cut his hair. And then again, Delilah says, Samson, wake up. The Philistines are upon you. And he wakes up. He wakes up. And this is what he says in verse 20. Then she cried out, Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. When he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. Just picture the scene. He wakes up. Maybe he like cracks his you know, his neck or something and like cracks his knuckles. He's like, all right, I got this. I got, uh, this, is, this is me, I'm Samson. And he charges after the first Philistine. Maybe in his mind, he's remembering that lion and he's like, I'll rip this guy apart. This will be great again. And he grabs the guy and he, he can't do it. Or he goes to throw a punch and he's like, man, that really hurt. Like what's going on? We don't know how it played out, but the Philistines grab a hold of him. They capture him and they take him away. And as they take him away, they gouge out his eyes. They completely humiliate him. They take him to their temple. And this is what it says in verse 23. The Philistine rulers held a great festival offering sacrifices and praising their god Dagon. And they said, our God has given us victory over our enemy Samson. Now, do you remember the Nazarite vow? Do you remember the last thing? Yeah, so far, he's touched dead bodies, he's drunk wine, he's cut his hair, and now his vow is gone. He's completely broken all of it. But think about this, God was still with him for over 20 years of his boastfulness, of his arrogance, of his complete lack of faith in God. And we don't know why exactly it was like this moment, God was like, you know what, I'm done now. But we do have that verse 4, remember, way back in the beginning, where God was like, I'm working all this for a chance to get at the Philistines. God is still at work. But from our human perspective, we see in the next episode that Samson has been captured. Like, throughout his whole story, we've been waiting for this trajectory to get to the point where he begins rescuing Israel. And if this is your first time hearing the story, like, this is the low point. Like, what in the world— God is supposed to deliver Israel using Samson, and here Samson has been delivered into the hands of the Philistines. He's been captured. This is not good. This wasn't supposed to happen this way. He was the guy with the great resume. He wasn't like Ehud. He wasn't like Deborah. He wasn't uh, like Gideon. He was Samson. And yet here he is, captured by the Philistines, blind and humiliated. But the story doesn't end there. We go to verses 26 and 27 of chapter 16. And Samson, he's in the temple, and it says this. He said to the young servant who was leading him by the hand, because remember, he can't see anymore. He says, place my hands against the pillars that hold up the temple. I want to rest against them. Now, the temple was completely filled with people. All the Philistine rulers were there, and there were about 3,000 men and women on the roof who were watching as Samson amused them. And continuing on to verse 28, then Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Oh God, please strengthen me just one more time with one blow. Let me pay back the Philistines for the loss of my two eyes. Now we have to pause here. This is the lowest point. Samson, he's been completely humbled and humiliated. He's standing in the temple. He can't see, but he's being mocked and ridiculed by all these Philistines. And kind of rightly so because He's been their, their enemy, and he's been so arrogant and boastful. But at this point, something's changed in Samson. Remember back when he slaughtered all the Philistines with the jawbone? He said he was like, I've done this. I've done this. He kept boasting. Is he boasting in his strength anymore? No. Here, Samson is at his lowest, but instead of boasting about his strength, he's asking God to strengthen him. He says, Lord, remember me. Like that's a posture of humility where he's saying, God, remember me. Does he deserve to be remembered by God? No. And yet he's crying out to God. He's seeking God. He's asking God humbly for that strength. Now, some people read this verse and say, well, Samson's only out to revenge. Nothing's changed. And is that partly true? I think so. Like he wants to get back at the Philistines for the loss of his two eyes. But there's clearly some heart change that's happened. In his weakest moment, he's actually now turned and he's trusting God. He's turned and he's humble. And what happens? In verses 29 and 30, we read this. Then Samson, he put his hands on the two center pillars that held up the temple. And pushing against them with both hands, he prayed, Let me die with the Philistines. And the temple crashed down on the Philistine rulers and all the people... So he killed more people when he died than he had during his entire life. Remember, the place was full of Philistine rulers and leaders. And in his death, he's finally begun to do what we've been waiting for this whole time. He's finally begun to rescue Israel. That's the story of Samson. It's crazy and it's bizarre. I think it's even crazier and more bizarre if you just go ahead and read it. But there's so much we could talk about from this story, but there's just a couple things I want us to draw out of it today. First, Samson is so gifted by the Spirit. Like, and it's so amazing. Like the Spirit is so clearly working in him. Like he has this supernatural strength where he can rip lions in half. Like only the Spirit of God could give that to someone. And I want us to think about that though for a little bit because he's so gifted. And, and the spirit is with him. But if Samson has God's spirit, why is he such a bad guy? Like, why is he so cocky and arrogant? Why is he such a womanizer? Why is he just just so terrible? Because he is. You know, shouldn't we see him growing in holiness or godliness because the spirit of the Lord is stirring within him? Shouldn't we see his character changing over the 20 years that he's judged over in Israel? You know, how can he be so empowered by the Spirit and yet have such character flaws? One of the commentaries I was reading, it, it was talking about this kind of tension in the story, and it says this It says, It is possible to have the gifts of the Spirit, yet lack the fruit of the Spirit. It's possible to have the gifts of the Spirit, yet lack the fruit of the Spirit. In the New Testament, we, we read about the gifts of the spirit. We also read about the fruit of the spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12 and, verse, and in chapter 14, it talks about it. but First Corinthians 12:7 says, "A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other." And the Apostle Paul's writing this, and he's talking to believers, like all believers have spiritual gifts that they can use to, to serve and to help other people. And if you're here today, that's tr- and you're a believer, that's true. You have spiritual gifts and abilities. And in 1 Corinthians 12, uh, and of chapter 14, the, the gifts of the Spirit are things that people do. They're teaching, they're healing, they're preaching, they're encouraging, they're these types of things. And I think there's all sorts of things that could be under the gifts and the abilities God gives us. Our musical gifts, our, our hospitality, our ability to Parents well and grandparents well, our ability to come alongside and encourage people, our leadership skills, our business skills, like all sorts of different things that every person has something their gifts from the spirit, but we use them to do something, we do something with them, their actions, but in Galatians we learn about the fruit of the spirit, and this is what it says galatians five twenty two to twenty three but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of life in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit isn't about what we do. It's about who we are. You could be the most gifted leader in the world and yet have, a, have terrible character. You could be the most gifted teacher or musician or, or construction worker or artist or parent, or whoever, but have terrible character flaws. And I think we sometimes see that, sadly, in the church today, where we see people who are so fixated on the gifts God has given them, on the, the things they do for God, that they fail to think about, are they like Jesus? They fail to think about their character. They fail to think about the way that they're living, the way that they're being. And Samson has spiritual giftedness, but did he have spiritual maturity throughout his life? No, he didn't. He had such a great gift, but he had no maturity until the very end, where he's finally humbled himself, crying out to God. And so this is one thing I think we can learn from the book, or from the story of Samson: is that we can't confuse our spiritual giftedness with spiritual maturity. We can't say, oh, look at me, I'm such a great Christian, I'm so spiritually mature, I'm so much like Jesus because I do this for God, I do that for God, I do this, I do that, like, look at how God's gifted me with this. Should we use our gifts for God in serving the church and serving other people? Yeah, absolutely. But when we fail to think about our, our character and about our heart and about are we actually being like Jesus... We can easily become like Samson and take our giftedness and rather than use it for God, we use it for ourselves and we abuse people along the way and we hurt other people because we don't have the character and the integrity and we don't have the fruit of the spirit being developed within us. Have you ever sat back and thought, man, I'm pretty far along in my discipleship. I'm pretty spiritually mature because I do this for Jesus or I do that for Jesus. tell you what, I can do that so so easily because it's easy to quantify the things I do. It's a lot harder to quantify where my heart's at. It's so much easier to look at my calendar and say, well, I did this for you, Jesus. I did that for you, Jesus. And it's like, it's so much easier to do that rather than to sit back and say, am I having self-control right now? Am I, you know, having peace in my relationships? Am I seeking to be spiritually mature And so I think we need to process through that. Now, Samson, the greatest moment of his life was at the very end, where he finally had some spiritual maturity. But it's in that moment that he gained spiritual maturity. That moment, is that the highlight of his life? When he's in the temple of Dagon and he's blinded and he's weak? Is that the highlight of his life? No. That's at his weakest moment And yet in his weakest moment, we see him gain spiritual maturity, and he finally becomes strong. And so I want us, as we begin to wrap up, just to process weakness a little bit, because our moments of weakness tend to be some of the most defining moments of our lives. And when I say weakness, I don't just mean physically weak, but I just process like the low points of our lives, when we've failed, and we've messed up, and we've, we've hurt other people, when there's loss of life and someone we love passes away. When we lose a job, when, we, when, when our character flaws finally come out and sin catches up to us and we just get hurt and we hurt other people or someone else hurts us, just think about those low moments of life. And I know there's some of us who are we would say right now is a really low moment. But low moments tend to be the defining moments of our lives because low moments, one, they can define us in bad ways. Because moments of weakness can draw out the worst in us if we let it. When we reach our low points, when we get to a point where we're just going to break, it's so easy to want to just lash out at people or to hurt others or to use and abuse others to try to numb the pain or to blame it all on somebody else rather than to take responsibility. Or it's easy to just throw it back at God and to walk away from Him. And so those low points in our lives become very defining sometimes in bad ways because. The worst comes out. But moments of weakness don't also, can also do this. They can be great opportunities for growth and for change. And I believe we see that in the life of Samson, and I think we see that all over the Bible, where God allows people to get to their lowest point, and in that point, God does something amazing. He changes their hearts. They become more like Jesus. Now, Samson, if you didn't have that last part where he saved the Philistines or, or he saved Israel by by praying out to God at the end, it would be really easy just to say, you know, what his life was a wash; it was terrible. How could we look at him as like us as a as a champion of the faith? But we go to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, and Samson is described as a man of faith. And I think the only reason it could be that is because at the very end, spiritual maturity happens, and he cries out to God. And this is what it says, Hebrews 11, verses 32, it says, how much more do I need to say? It would take too long to recount the stories of the faith of Gideon, Barak, and Samson, and why it goes on, says their weakness was turned to strength. Samson is remembered because in his weakest moment, he became strong, not in himself, but because God answered him, because God worked within him. And we see this true of the life of the apostle Paul in first or in second Corinthians chapter 12. And this is what he says in second Corinthians chapter 12, the apostle Paul's been crying out to God because of an issue he's been having. And he says, "So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh." We don't know exactly what that was. And he says a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times I begged the Lord to take it away. And each time he said, my peace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Jesus says to Paul, my grace is all you need. My power is best in weakness. So I think clearly God has something for allowing us to get to weak moments. God isn't afraid of allowing us to reach those points. I don't like that, but we have to wrestle with that because I think God has something in plan for us and in store for us because I think God uses our weaknesses to produce spiritual maturity within us. It's really easy to, to not turn to God when life is going good in our eyes, but when life is going bad, those, at least for me, those tend to be the moments where I'm like, man, I got to get my stuff together. I need to not go after the the idols of my heart, I need to turn to God. And I've had weak moments where it feels like, you know what, this is too painful, this is too hard, but looking back, I'm able to see that it is true, God uses our weakness to produce spiritual maturity. So how do you react in your weakest moments? And just really quickly, a couple things I think we can learn from Paul's responses. One, I think we should seek God in our moments of weakness. Apostle Paul poured out his heart to God three times. Our God is our good, loving Heavenly Father. We're his kids. He wants us to talk to him. In our weakest moments, God isn't saying, well, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and just become like Jesus. No, he's there with us, and he wants us to lean into him. So one, we should seek God in our moments of weakness. Second, I think we should trust that God is working in our weaknesses, even if he doesn't take them away. The apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh. We don't know what that was, but God said, you know what? I hear you, but Paul, my my son, my child, I love you, but I'm not going to take this away. Our God is a good father, and he knows what's best for us. And sometimes he doesn't just take everything away. Sometimes he allows us to go through painful moments, to teach us, to ultimately make us more like Jesus, and this is where being a Christian, being a disciple, is not easy. And we can't have that delusion that, that following God is going to just make my life easier. Sometimes it makes it harder, but it makes it better. Because what is life really about? It's about being with God and loving God, knowing Him and loving others. And I've found, at least in my life, when I don't have moments of weakness, I get so proud and arrogant, and I, I, can, I, I write God off, and I do life my own way, but I need those moments of weakness to continually draw me back to the heart of my Father. The last thing is this. As Jesus followers, the thing we need most is the thing we already have. It can be so easy to get our perspective locked on, well, life is so hard right now. This relationship is falling apart. Like, I don't have enough money. I, how am I going to pay for this? How am I going to take care of my kids? And we get all real things, all hard things, all things we need to think about and process. But if that's the greatest need in our mind, then we're missing something. Because the greatest need has already been met. We were born into sin and iniquity and we were separated from God. And yet what did our God do? He gave his life for us. He pours out his love and his grace for us the weak moments of our lives are going to fly by like that because we have all eternity to look forward to with our God. And so the thing that we need most, our father's like, I already gave it to you. You can get through this weakness because you have my love. You have my grace. You have my mercy. And that's what I want us to land on today. We need to have good perspective in our times of weakness because we're all going to go through them. So if you're here today and you're in a moment of weakness, I'd really encourage you to keep seeking out God. He wants you to cry out to him. He's there for you. You can trust him because he sees the whole picture. Even if, even if you, you never get the answer why something bad happens. There are things in my life I can look back and it was like in the moment, I didn't know why, but now I can see, you know what? I'm so glad that God allowed that ha- to happen. It was so painful in the moment, but I'm so glad it happened. There are other things I look back on And I have zero idea why God allowed me to go through that. But I can trust God because He has the bigger picture. And lastly, we can make it through our weakness. You can make it through those weak moments, those low points, because God's already given you the thing you need most Himself. So, church family, this week, as we go through our our weak moments, Let's not confuse spiritual gifts with spiritual maturity. Let's lean into the process of becoming like Jesus. Let's lean into our God and let's lean into his love and his grace for us because he's at work. If he can work through Samson and all the terrible things Samson did, he can work through our lives and through our weak moments. Let's turn to him, okay? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being our God. Thank you so much for showing up Thank you especially for showing up 2,000 years ago and experiencing human weakness and frailty and pain and suffering, not because you had to, but because you wanted to give us what we needed. You wanted to give us life eternal. You wanted to restore our relationship with you. And Lord, may those truths and may those realities help all of us this coming week as we hit low points and moments of weakness and moments of failure where life is just so hard May we lean into you because you are good, you are loving, and you are kind. Thank you for being faithful to us even when we're not faithful to you. Draw near to us this week. In your holy and precious name I pray, amen.